Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your law is perfect, reviving the soul. Your testimony is sure, making wise the simple. Your precepts are right, rejoicing the heart. Your commandment is pure, enlightening the eyes. Your word is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. And so teach us all now, and as I preach, may the words of my mouth, and may the meditation of the hearts of all listening be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Sermon text tonight, Daniel chapter 3. If you open to it again in the Pew Bibles, page 738. We read the text earlier, and I'll be reading uh, selections as we work our way through it tonight. In the late 1930s in the Soviet Union, at a small provincial meeting, the name of Joseph Stalin was mentioned in passing, and this meant that everyone needed to suddenly stand on their feet and give a standing ovation. But it also led to a dilemma, for no one dared to be the first one to sit down and stop clapping. After some time, an elderly man grew tired, and he took his seat. His name was dutifully noted, and the next day he was arrested, for he failed to sufficiently render worship to the nation's idol. Will you bow down to the idols of the culture around us? That's the question Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego face in our text tonight. And the question I want you to face as you hear the sermon tonight. Last time in Daniel chapter 2, we saw that Daniel successfully interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar's troubling dream. It was a revelation from the Lord that four human kingdoms would rise and fall and the kingdom of God would come and would last forever. While Nebuchadnezzar was relieved to know the meaning of his dream, he was relieved to know that his kingdom would not immediately fall. His actions in this chapter are designed to shore up his power and to increase the loyalty of his subjects. And so when the Jews refused to bow down to his golden image, they had to be eliminated. At the theological center of this passage is the bold confession of faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In our study in the book of Romans, we will soon be coming to chapter 13, where we are commanded to submit to the governing authorities. That this passage confronts us with a question. What are we to do when their laws clearly contradict the law of our God? And the law of God and the law of civil government come into conflict. To whom are we to submit? And what are we to expect when what are we to expect from our God when we faithfully faithfully obey him rather than man? We'll work through our passage in three parts tonight, followed by several application points. First part, the golden image dedicated and worship commanded, verses 1 through 7. Reading again verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. We're not told how much time has passed since 
chapter 2, but this image appears to be inspired by Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But also note the differences. Rather than just a head of gold, this is an entire statue of gold. Perhaps Nebuchadnezzar is trying to defy the prophetic dream, to build a kingdom that will never fall, as symbolized by an image that is gold from top to bottom. Also note the dimensions. Converting cubits to feet, it's 90 feet tall, but only 9 feet wide, relatively thin for its height, like a, a giant column or pillar. We're not given any description of what the image depicted, whether it was Nebuchadnezzar himself or one of the Babylonian deities. It was not necessarily a human image, or if it was, it was an absurdly skinny human image. So whatever the image depicted, worshiping it was a demonstration of loyalty to the king and to the Babylonian empire. You also don't know the exact location of the plain of Dura, but we should recall this is in the same general location where the Tower of Babel was once built. The large collection of high officials in verse 2 demonstrate the importance of this dedication ceremony. Notice there are not only people from all the provinces of the empire, but this includes people of various nations and languages, a symbolic bringing together of those who were scattered by the confusing of languages following the Tower of Babel. The list of instruments in verse 4 includes exotic instruments imported from far off Greece. This demonstrates the lavish wealth of Nebuchadnezzar's court. The symphony not only makes impressive music, but it is the signal. Now is the time to bow down and render worship. With this description of all the impressive officials gather, the long list of musical instruments, and all this is repeated time and time again. The impression you get is that this dedication ceremony is the not-to-be-missed event of the year, if not the event of the decade. And so you can hardly imagine the pressure that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego must have felt as all the court officials around them fell down on their faces and worshipped the image. It certainly must have stood out like a sore thumb as everyone around them were on their faces and they were the only ones left standing. It's no wonder that their disobedience to the king's command was noticed and reported. Children, have you ever tattled on your brother or sister, perhaps after a mealtime prayer, saying, Billy opened his eyes during the prayer? Perhaps your mom or dad responded, How did you know his eyes were open unless your eyes were open? In this case, it wasn't required that they had their eyes closed. And so I think many would have noticed that these men remained standing. And yet, as much as this dedication ceremony was a grand event with a marvelous symphony and this long list of honorable officials, the way it is presented to us by the author gives us a sense that it was a bit hollow. This is a a biblical author writing this, and he knows that worship that is mandated by the king is not true worship. When you are forced by the king to worship an image that is newly invented and just set up, is that even worship at all? Or are you just putting on a show because your life depends on it? 
Of course, you go through the motions because who wants to be thrown into a burning, fiery furnace? But do you even really want to be there? Do you really want to bow down and worship? Is your heart in it? Dale Ralph Davis tells the story of Hitler's visit to Florence to cement his alliance with Mussolini in 1938. Italian people were rather apathetic. So to increase the sense of raucous crowds cheering the Fuhrer as he paraded himself through the streets, they played crowd noise over loudspeakers. The whole thing must have rang rather hollow. Here too in Daniel, perhaps there were other officials there who wished they had the courage to stand like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Nevertheless, it appears that those three were the only three who dared to disobey the king's orders. This brings us to part two, the Jews accused, tried, and sentenced. Before we get going here, one question that naturally arises at this point in the narrative is, where is Daniel? I like how one pastor put it. A close examination of the text reveals to us that we have absolutely no idea. There's a few options. Perhaps he was not required to attend, although that seems unlikely. Perhaps he was ill. Or it seems most likely to me, perhaps he was traveling abroad on the king's business. For whatever reason, he's out of the picture in this chapter. In verse 8, therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. This accusation was malicious in the sense that it sought harm against these men. Surely these accusers had noticed the meteoric rise of Daniel and his three friends. And it's not unlikely that there were many who had grown jealous to have outsiders who suddenly had a higher rank than their own. He now took advantage of this perfect opportunity to cast them down from such a great height. We tend to think of a malicious accusation as being based on a falsehood, but in this case, their accusations are true. The specific accusations are found in verse 12. First, they paid no attention to you, O king. That is, they ignored you. Second, they do not serve your gods. And third, They do not worship the golden image you set up. And it's this third accusation that strikes home most of all, for it's a direct violation of Nebuchadnezzar's command. It is this violation that carries the automatic death sentence in the burning, fiery furnace. On the Jews' defense, they are simply obeying the Ten Commandments. They have in mind the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. But most of all, the second commandment, you shall make no graven image, and you shall not bow down to any graven image, no idol made by human hands. These men recognize something that no one else around them seems to notice. The pillar is merely a man-made object. In fact, this is brought out in one term that is repeated over and over in the text, in the first verse forward a total of nine times. And that's the term, set up. This is merely an image that Nebuchadnezzar set up. It is no God. It is not worthy of worship. And so they refuse to bow down to it. 
It doesn't matter how many others do so. It doesn't matter how many exotic instruments play together in a beautiful symphony while they do so. It doesn't matter the consequences for their disobedience, even if it costs them their lives. Their worship is reserved for God and for him alone. That's true. They do serve Nebuchadnezzar while in exile, but they will not worship him or his gods. Now let me ask, what is our culture calling us to bow down to and worship today? Maybe a decade or so ago, it was the push for gay marriage, but that all seems to have been generally accepted in our culture, and it's the old news. Now, the new idols are the transgender agenda, critical race theory, other aspects of the woke ideology. And many of the corporations, the universities, our government leaders have been quick to bow down to those who are pushing these agendas, and they've jumped on the bandwagon. Are you willing to stand up and say, these things are not true. These things are not God's man-made idols and I will not bow down to them. We see Nebuchadnezzar's response to the accusations in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. We're familiar with his rage and fury leading to swift executions from chapter 2. And yet here in chapter 3, he actually gives the three men a brief trial as he interrogates them and gives them one more chance to worship the image. These concessions seem to indicate how highly he values their service. So while he gives them a chance to deny the accusation or to prove their loyalty by bowing down to the image, his closing words are an insult to the Lord. And who is the God who would deliver you out of my hands. Now, perhaps you could read this as a a sincere question. I think it's more likely a rhetorical question with the implied answer. There is no such God. And most likely, Nebuchadnezzar didn't think of this as an insult. For him, he was simply stating a fact about the world and the pagan gods he was familiar with. They had some limited power, sure, but no God could match the power of the king of the Babylonian Empire, especially when you were already in his hands. And yet this rhetorical question provokes a stirring confession of faith from the three companions. They begin in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. First off, they are saying, The outcome will be the same, whatever our reply to you. We will not change our course of action, and you will not change your course of action. And they continue. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Let's break this down. What are they saying? First, they confess the power of God. They have no doubt about God's power, his ability to save them. In answer to Nebuchadnezzar's question, 
The Lord, the God of Israel, is the God who has the power to save them out of his hand. Second, they hope and pray that he will save them. And here, I think it's worth noting that this second phrase in verse 17, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, it can be better translated as a prayer. And may he deliver us out of your hand, O king. Third, they recognize that they do not know God's will concerning their future, whether or not he will answer their prayer, whether or not he will, in fact, save them. The fourth This uncertainty about the Lord's response changes nothing. They still will obey the Lord and not the king, even if that costs them their lives. If it is God's will that we perish, we will perish serving him to the very end. He is faithful, and we will remain faithful to him. What a beautiful confession of faith! What a testimony! Before the most powerful man on earth. This brings us to part three. Deliverance through the fiery furnace. We are stirred by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's testimony. The king had a very different response. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. If Nebuchadnezzar was angry before, now he is absolutely boiling with fury and rage. He doesn't want them merely tossed in the furnace. He must first have it blazing hot, seven times hotter than usual. Men are bound with their clothes on and cast into the fire. There's a great irony here. The diligent soldiers who obeyed Nebuchadnezzar's orders and cast the men into the furnace, they die in their service to the king. While those who disobey him, they will come out of the furnace alive. Either the furnace was designed with an open door or else no one could close the door and escape alive. And so the experience of the three men in the furnace is told from the perspective of King Nebuchadnezzar looking in from the outside. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. First, we notice that their bonds, we don't know if they were of rope or even of metal, perhaps, they have been burned or melted away. They are up and walking around. Though the guards who carried them to the furnace perished in the heat, these men are unharmed and they are going for a stroll. And even more strikingly, a fourth man has appeared in the furnace. Who is this fourth man described as having the appearance like a son of the gods? Clearly, God has sent an angel to preserve and to strengthen Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the burning, fiery furnace, and also to reveal his glorious power to Nebuchadnezzar and his counselors as they looked on. The question 
is whether this was an ordinary angel, which is itself quite extraordinary, or is it the angel of the Lord, which is the Lord himself, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Which is it? A simple answer is we aren't given enough information here to know for sure. Our description is given from the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar, who is a pagan idolater and no expert at discerning between different angels. And I think we must also say if the Lord wanted us to know for sure, he could have made it clear as he does in other passages in the Old Testament. King James' translation decided the issue for readers by rendering it the uh, an appearance like the capital S son of capital G God, but the original is not so clear. I think the ESV is the more accurate translation rendering it like a son of the gods. So while we cannot say for certain one way or another, I think that either way the passage teaches one and the same truth. God is with his people in the midst of fiery trials. He doesn't always keep us out of fiery trials, but he is with us in the midst of them. He declared this to his people in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 43, 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. And how much more so in the new covenant when Christ has promised, I am with you always to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. He is with you in your trials. We saw how Nebuchadnezzar responded in fury to their good confession. Let's now see his response to their preservation in the fiery furnace. Verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. Now, this is one command from the king they are glad to obey. And so after some time in the furnace, the three men simply walk out. Notice also the title Nebuchadnezzar gives to the Lord. He is more and more recognizing the Lord's power, calling him here the Most High God. He's still a polytheist, but he has seen the Lord's power twice now. And he is realizing that he far surpasses the gods of Babylon. Verse 27, And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Fire not only had not touched their bodies, had not touched their clothes, nor even left its scent on them. Now, children, you know how even a little time around the campfire leaves a smoky smell in your hair and on your clothes, but not this time. Some of the gathered officials must have been the very ones who brought that malicious accusation, but who now stand as witnesses of the great miracle of their deliverance through the fiery furnace. The king's next response is one of praise. Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Another irony is that his praise even includes praising God for their setting aside his own command. Then he makes an edict. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their house laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. It's not only makes Judaism a legal, tolerated religion in the empire, but as you can see, it offers protections against those who would blaspheme the God of Israel. While Nebuchadnezzar is not yet ready to forsake his own gods, you can see he recognizes something unique about the God of Israel. No other God is able to rescue in this way. He has the answer to his earlier question. This is the God who can deliver out of his hand. Finally, the chapter closes with a promotion. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. We're three chapters into Daniel, and all three chapters have ended with a promotion for Daniel or his friends. And all three chapters have told salvation stories. Now let's consider a few points of application. First, what an excellent example of faith. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make a brief appearance in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews eleven thirty four, as those who through faith, quote, quenched the power of fire. Of course, it's not just the fact that they survived the fiery furnace, and I'm most moved by their bold confession of faith before King Nebuchadnezzar, the confidence with which they spoke of their faith and the power of God to deliver them and their willingness to give their lives to remain obedient to the Lord. Second, let's consider the question of civil disobedience. There are a few well-known examples of this in the Bible. First, there are the midwives of Egypt, Shifra and Puah, who feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live, Exodus 1, 17. Daniel 6, just a few chapters ahead, Daniel will disobey King Cyrus's law against, or King Darius's law against prayer. Then in Acts 5, when the Sanhedrin find the apostles still preaching Christ after they were strictly charged not to, Peter and the apostles answer, we must obey God rather than men, Acts 5, 29. <coughs> in each of these examples, The reason for disobeying the civil rulers was that their law explicitly outlawed something that God required, or vice versa, in the case of the midwives, requiring murder, which God himself forbids. Now, for whatever reason, in each of these biblical examples, the ones who disobeyed the civil authorities were able to escape punishment. Yet, as we saw here, Chadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not assume that this would be the case. If you look at the history of the church, you know that there have been hundreds, thousands of martyrs who have lost their lives for remaining faithful to the Lord, even when this meant breaking unjust laws. And they were punished. They lost their lives for doing so. 
They were heeding the words of Christ, who said in Luke 12, 4 through 5, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more than they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. There's a lot more that can be said about civil disobedience, and I plan to cover this topic in more detail in my series on Romans when we get to Romans chapter 13. So we'll be looking forward to that this coming June. This brings us to our next point of application. Fiery trials will come. The Bible assures us of this both by example and by explicit teaching. Consider the words of Christ. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 10, 21 and 22. Similarly, Matthew 24, 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. I think Peter may have had Daniel chapter 3 in mind when he wrote these words. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Peter says, do not be surprised. Trials are sure to come, and they will be hot and fiery. So how can we be comforted? Not only that, how can we even rejoice? We already saw it in our passage. Christ is with us in the midst of our fiery trials. Christ has said he is with you always to the end of the age, but especially in the midst of trials. Perhaps you've experienced this already. Or perhaps the trial that will make his personal presence known to you even more deeply is still to come. These verses from Isaiah have been precious memory verses for me since my college days. Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. And now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. God doesn't just keep us from fiery trials, but he is with us in the midst of them. And he also has a purpose for them. He would not send them without a purpose. First Peter passage mentioned this. They come to test you, to refine you, to purify you. And Peter also writes, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not only is Christ with us in our trials, I think it's a beautiful thing how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
stuck together throughout this whole affair. I don't know exactly how it worked, but even in their confession before the king, it says that the three spoke as one. Certainly the three had bonded close together by their shared exile, and they must have been even closer after this incident. But we ought to follow their example in suffering together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And certainly this is no easy thing to do. As we, as a church, are called to suffer with those who suffer, to grieve with those who grieve, to carry one another's burdens. This requires knowing one another, slowly over time growing to trust one another, and then making your burdens and your struggles known to those you know and trust. Sometimes it seems like it would be easier to just go it alone. But this is not true. You cannot go it alone in the Christian life. We need one another. And so as we walk together as a church family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, carrying one another and being carried, we will know the fellowship of the saints and how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And yet this is all experience as we are in the midst of fiery trials which will surely come. The Christ is in the midst of them all. He is suffering. He has suffered and we are called to suffer with him. And he is with us. And he will surely bring us home. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for this wonderful passage of your word, the wonderful example of the faith of these three men and how they did not bow down to an idol, how they stood and remained faithful and how you delivered them. We see your mighty power and we remember, God, that you are still the God who continues to deliver your people. Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength to stand fast as we see the idols all around us, the pressure of our culture seeking to conform us to its image. Give us the strength to stand, to remain faithful, and to do it all for your honor and your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.